Imagine for a moment the Old West. It's a vast and rugged terrain with some tumbleweeds rolling by. Maybe some cowboys with a striking resemblance to John Wayne roaming the plains. This is a stereotypical snapshot of the Old West, or at least how it's presented. Many of the stories we hear usually depict the same kind of character. A frontiersman, that John Wayne type. He's self-sufficient, he's white, and he's strictly heterosexual. It's estimated that in 1880, most of the American West had at least 20% more men than women. But gender and sexuality in the Old West was much more diverse than we might see in the movies. There were numerous people who dressed in ways that, according to society, didn't comport with their biological sex. That's historian Peter Bogue. He's researched sexuality in the Old West, including stories of people cross-dressing. He looked at old arrest records, newspaper articles, and other documents and found there were many reasons why somebody might don clothing of the opposite sex. This was especially the case for women because women were more marginalized people in society and they might dress as a male in order to take advantage of better paying jobs or types of work that were only available to men. Bogue says it's very possible these people were what we might regard today as transgender. But back then, this wasn't even a concept, let alone socially acceptable. That wasn't a term used then. I don't find it anywhere in the documents. And so I tried to understand the people according to how they identified themselves or how their society identified them. And so sometimes um, some people that we today might consider transgender, if they were arrested, they might actually use any number of excuses that were common for people who might not be transgender and who are caught dressing as the opposite sex. But it was very difficult, I think, for people who were transgender to be transgender. And I'm not exactly always sure how they really felt as far as comfort in their own skins. One of these people was Mrs. Nash, a laundress from Mexico who worked for Lieutenant Colonel George Custer's 7th Cavalry. That's the regiment infamously remembered for its defeat at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Bogue says Mrs. Nash spent about a decade with the cavalry and even married some of the military men. She found three husbands. So in this sense, she was very much integrated into that community. She also worked um, very important jobs, not only as a laundress, but she also worked as a midwife delivering children for many of the officers' wives. And so Elizabeth Custer, the wife of George Armstrong Custer, writes about these types of activities that Nash participated in making it appear that she very much was part of this community, and that seems to be the case. But Elizabeth Custer also racializes Nash in these stories, too, and writes in a way that is somewhat condescending and smirking 
of Nash. And so there are questions then to what degree Nash actually is accepted in this community. Poor Miss Annie shuddered when I spoke of her, for the woman was a Mexican, and like the rest of that hairy tribe, she had so coarse and stubborn a beard that her chin had a blue look after shaving, in marked contrast to her swarthy face. She was tall, angular, awkward, and seemingly coarse, but I knew her to be tender-hearted. In days gone by, I had found, when she told me of her troubles, that they had softened her nature. When she was stationed at Fort Lincoln in what was then Dakota Territory, she died, and when she died, it was discovered that she had the body of a male. Her past life of hardship and exposure told on her in time, and she became ailing and rheumatic. Finally, after we left Dakota, we heard that when death approached, she made an appeal to the camp women who surrounded her and had nursed her through her illness. She implored them to put her in her coffin, just as she was when she died, and bury her at once. They, thinking such a course would not be paying proper attention to the dead, broke their promise. The mystery which the old creature had guarded for so many years, through a life always public and conspicuous, was revealed. Old Nash, years before, becoming weary of the laborious life of a man, had assumed the disguise of a woman and hoped to carry the secret into the grave. She was married when she died. She was married to Corporal Noonan. He was out in the field doing reconnaissance work when his wife died from acute appendicitis. And when he came back, of course, the story was out that Mrs. Nash actually had the body of a male, so seemed to be a man. And so John Noonan came back to this not only word that his wife, whom he had been married to and lived with for a number of years, was dead. But he also is facing a perplexed public and other soldiers who start making jokes about him and joshing him in very mean-spirited ways about this relationship he had carried on for a number of years. After enduring the jibes and scoffs of his comrades for a few days, life became unbearable to the handsome soldier who had played the part of husband in order to gain possession of his wife's savings and vary the plain fare of the soldier with good suppers. He went into one of the company's stables when no one was there and shot himself. Like Bogue said, the story of Mrs. Nash became a big one in the press. And Mrs. Nash wasn't the only person who was featured in the news columns. Bogues says a sensational story about a cross-dresser wasn't rare during this time. There were lavish, romantic stories created to try to take account of why somebody would do this sort of thing. Has woman male soul? Does dead live in her? Is Professor Eugene DeForest, woman who masqueraded as a man for 25 years, the reincarnation of her dead brother? Or is her queer condition of male mentality in a female body due to parental influence? 
These are the questions which scientists are to solve, and on which lawyers may base their defense of the woman's masquerade. Unless she is permitted to wear men's clothes as she desires, and continues her life as she will. The law may not prevent her from so doing, but it will prevent her marrying again, either as a man or a woman. Oakland Tribune, September 3rd, 1915. Peter, I confess, much of my knowledge about the West comes from movies and old television shows, but certainly the image of the West is one that, well, I've never heard uh, a discussion of transgender. I've never seen it. It doesn't appear in any of the John Wayne movies that I've watched. Yeah, well, I began to wonder, why is it that these people that I found to be so numerous and so many historical records about them, why they have been largely forgotten from our Western past? It's a little bit easier to try to figure out why things are remembered, but how do you ever forget why someone or a culture works to forget something. So what's the answer, Peter? At the end of the 19th century is a very important transitional moment in American history. And it's at this time that crystallizes the romantic story about America's frontier past and the belief that the frontier past bequeathed to America all sorts of positive characteristics and attributes that make it into the best democracy in the world. You know, at the very time that this frontier romantic idea of America's frontier past was crystallizing, this is also when American sexologists start to study what they think is a new phenomenon, the appearance of sexual inversion. And they identify the appearance of sexual inversion with eastern urban areas in particular. They made the argument that frontier living conditions prevented sexual perversion from appearing. And it could only appear in a modern context, people living too close together, overstimulation of nightlife, bad hygiene. So how do these fascinating stories shed light on our contemporary conversation about gender identity. When we look at our myths about the frontier foundations of the United States and what this country has been and what this country is as far as a democracy, the myths that we have about this country were created purposely in juxtaposition of transgender people. So I think that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind today about transgender people specifically. There's this ongoing attempt to sideline them in our history and in our society, when in fact our history and society is really constructed in opposition to them. Peter Bogue is the Columbia Chair in the History of the American West at Washington State University. He's also the author of Redressing America's Frontier Past. 